Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Today we welcome Scott Rodwin of Naropa University, an adjunct faculty teaching green building design in the environmental department. Scott is one of the leading green architects in the country. Thanks for joining us, Scott. My pleasure. Could you uh, please just elaborate a little bit, introduce yourself, and also tell us what you're going to be teaching us today? Certainly. So I graduated from Cornell University with an architecture degree in 1991 and moved out to Boulder, where I've been living ever since. I have a 13-person design-build company. We both design the buildings and we're also the contractors for the builders. We specialize in green building and have for the 26 years that I've been in business. We focus primarily on residential. We do some commercial as well, but our mission has always been to push the envelope of sustainability. I've taught green building officially for the city of Boulder and Boulder County and for, I taught at a Waldorf school for 12 years before I came to Naropa a few years ago and started teaching the green building class. Awesome. All right, so what are we gonna be talking about today? I always think of green building as being a much broader topic than just the technical aspects of how do you build mm-hmm. energy efficient passive solar, things like that. I always start the class, the green building class, by helping students to have a new appreciation and awareness of the overall built environment, because that's really where it Mm. starts. If you don't care about or are unaware of what's happening in the built environment, Mm -hmm. there's not much impetus. There's not a a cause for you to actually take the extra efforts because it does take more effort, more time, more energy, more thought, more care, and more money Mm. in order to build more sustainably. Yeah. So there has to be a reason. You have to be looking at it and say, oh my God, I, I'm seeing that my energy bills are high. I'm seeing, or I'm becoming aware that it's impacting my personal health or the health of those around me. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing that it is consuming resources at an unsustainable rate that we're cutting down the forests. So once you see all those, once you gain an awareness of your relationship to the physical environment, then you can move into, okay, we understand why this is important. We understand what's happening. Now we can talk about the technical aspect of how to build green buildings, how to Mm. design sustainably. So this is how I start every class. I ask students, first of all, to keep a journal. We have what are called the the sketchbooks or the journals where everybody gets a, a real beautiful hard copy sketchbook and then they start taking notes and they personalize it. And I ask them to start observing. And every class we have a number of homework assignments. For example, I'll say, on your way to class today, did you come to class or to Naropa on the same path that you do every day in the same way? You're carrying your mocha, latte, whatever, <laughs> frappuccino. You're looking at your, your smartphone. You've got your headphones on and mm-hmm. you're walking on the same path that you've always gone or you're biking or whatever mm-hmm. you're doing. And that when you're doing, you're closing off your awareness of the world. The class always starts with, let's go take a walk. And we start walking around Mm -hmm. campus. And when we walk, I ask people to tell me what they observe. And then record that in the sketchbook. And we look at the the physical environment 
differently than we normally do. Sometimes I ask people to stand upside down, to you know, bend over and look, look at the world upside down, yeah. or to look at it as though they were a different kind of person. Mm-hmm. We actually use this in the architecture world when considering things like handicap accessibility. Mm-hmm. We say, what would it be like if you were looking at the world from the point of person in a wheelchair? Yeah. Um, or if you were mobility impaired, or if you were blind or deaf, or had some other, uh, something else that would be covered by the accessibility ADA. Mm-hmm. And this is just something that we do in architecture school that we learn as architects to look at what kind of physical environment are we creating for people. So one Mm. of the questions that I ask people on the Europa campus is, what's missing? Or what could we do here? We might be standing in the central courtyard and say, what would make this place, this space, a better place? And students will say, oh, a fountain, a garden, a covered shaded area where we could sit and study, mm-hmm. benches, hammocks, yeah. um, or connection directly into one of the other buildings from the courtyard side, better views, mm-hmm. um, renewable energy, all these things. And they start popcorning ideas yeah. saying, this is what we would like to see that would make this place better. Yeah. And that's the fundamental question of architecture and of sustainable design in particular, of how do we make this better? Mm-hmm we're not just responding to the immediate needs in front of us, such as we need a thousand square feet to add a classroom. We're asking the question of how do we make the opportunity of creating a classroom into something that is as wonderful and nourishing and sustainable as it possibly can be? How does it create a great learning environment? How does it also become part of the beauty of the campus? How does it contribute to the sustainability of the campus? All these things are wrapped in. Sustainability is very often thought of as being this technical overlay to all the other rules and requirements necessary for building. And we don't look at it that way. I look at it as the starting point, part of the holistic design. When someone says, I need a thousand square feet for a classroom, we'll ask questions like, why do you need it? What are you trying to achieve? Who's going to be there? What experience should the students have in the classroom? Should there be a living wall in the classroom? Should there be flexible seating? What kind of indoor-outdoor connection are you looking for? What kind of natural daylighting? So these are the sustainability aspects of the question, and they go back to the holistic design of the space. Going back to the awareness of the built environment, part of what we do at the beginning is we don't just focus on buildings, because very often when an architect is asked to get involved in a project, we're asked to design a room, a building, at most, a block of, of city, but it's a block is very rare. It's, it's usually just an individual piece of property. Yeah. And it's important for all of the students here to understand that sustainability can never be achieved solely on a building scale. We have to look at the planning that goes behind it, the values that create the planning, mm-hmm. and then the buildings are really the, the micro parts that, that come later, that come after the city has been planned. Yeah. So the question of how we live, one of the questions that I ask the students right at the beginning is to envision their optimal life. Do mm-hmm. they want to live in a little tiny town in the middle of nowhere, deep in a forest? Do they want to live in a medium-sized town like Boulder? Do they want to live in a great big city like Denver mm-hmm. or in a giant metropolis like yeah. New York City? And if so, to tell me about what the quality of life is. That phrase, quality of life, actually becomes the fundamental question or filter through which we look at every aspect of the sustainable design projects that the students then do over the course of the class. Mm-hmm. The, the class actually goes from a micro to a macro scale. At the beginning, we have them do a project where they research a particular aspect of sustainability. 
solar panels, straw bale walls, whatever is their particular interest. Then halfway through the class, we have them design a building. And we have everybody work in teams because in the real world, that's how you actually do it. You interact yeah. and everybody's got a piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So then they build a building, whether it's a classroom or a home or whatever it is that they design, we have them create that and we teach them all the rules for building a green building. Then lastly, we have them set a green building in the context of the city. Because at the end of the day, if we're only creating a building for you and me, mm -hmm. say you know, one, one person or a couple or a family, yeah. our impact is small. But when we're looking at the sustainability of an entire ecosystem, meaning a town or a city, then we're starting to impact sustainability on a large scale. So you can't just build a green building in a city where you have to drive everywhere. That's not a green building. Mm -hmm. Or you can't just build it out in the middle of nowhere if you still have to drive everywhere to get all your resources yeah. met. So we set the green buildings in the context of the larger ecosystem of humans. How do we create a city that actually functions as a sustaining ecosystem? And how does your house or your school or your office become a vital part of that, one that's in, in harmony with it. As a big part of that, we unpack and unwrap the entire process of how we got there. We talk about the history of building, of green building, of technologies, of transportation, of frankly, macroeconomic systems, tax law, financial incentives, mortgages. We actually look at things that you wouldn't think are necessarily part of green building, but understand that everything right down to whether or not you decide to put solar panels on your house is based on a variety of, of factors, including things like whether or not you get a rebate from the federal government or from the public utility company, and whether or not it's allowed by building code. So when we start to set all of the sustainable design solutions that the students that come to this class are most interested in into the context of how do you make this thing, students find that green building or architecture and buildings in general touch every aspect of their lives. Where do you get your food? Where do you get your education? Where do you make money? Where do you do business? Where do you live? Where do you go for your health care? All of these things are tied into the aspect of sustainable development, sustainable planning. So when students are asked to, or when I ask students to record and journal their path from their home to the classroom that day, mm -hmm. I actually give them an assignment. I say, let's do it differently. Your assignment today is to take a different path or a different process, a different journey to get from point A to point B so that you start to notice and be aware of your environment. What's the ground made of? Is it asphalt, concrete, dirt, grass, flagstone? What is it? Where does the water go? Because that just came up as a major question for the city of Houston. Yeah. Houston <clears throat> has no zoning regulations. They built willy-nilly and they paved mm. over almost all of their permeable surface. Yeah. So when the hurricane hit, Hurricane Harvey hit, yeah. all of a sudden the water didn't have any place to go. And it wasn't all of a sudden, it's the cumulative impact of 50 years of decision-making process from yeah. a sustainable wow. planning perspective, mm -hmm. made up of individual buildings and individual decisions, but all through this filter of them not paying attention to where water goes, mm -hmm. how we recharge the soil. Yep. And they have other problems, too, such as their transportation. They have perpetual gridlock and, and traffic. They have smog and pollution. They have enormous energy and utility bills because of the way that they design and yeah. think about things. Yep. It's not necessary. 
I always take every bad example as an opportunity for how we can do well. So nice. the class is not judgmental if Houston is bad and Boulder is good. It's, yeah. it's that Houston now has an amazing opportunity to rewrite mm-hmm. how they are going to rebuild. Are they going to look at where does our water go and how do we use energy? How do we become more resilient? How do we function better from a passive point of view? Passive, in my mind, means being in harmony with your environment. So part of this question of becoming more aware of your connection to the physical environment means actually observing how you personally are affected by your physical environment. As you're walking from your house to the classroom that day, were you cold? Were you hot? Did you walk in puddles? Was there sunshine on you? Were you walking by traffic? How could your experience lead to a higher quality of life for you? Yeah. The first step of answering that question is becoming aware of your current situation, to actually expanding your senses, to becoming present and conscious to what's going on. This mindfulness is a foundational principle of sustainable design. With all sustainable design, whether we're talking about city design or an individual building design or even just design of a room, we always start from what is the personal experience that you are having of your interaction with the space now? How do you become more aware of it? How do you quiet your mind? How do you take away some of the distractions and the numbing aspects that we often put ourselves in the middle of? The coffee, the smartphone, the earbuds, you know, playing music, the sunglasses, whatever it is that's cutting down our connection to the physical environment. I ask the students in the class to take off those blinders and see if they can get incredibly intimately, exquisitely connected to their physical environment, whatever it is. So a second piece of homework that we do is to have them journal about, draw, write, do poetry, whatever it is that is their method of expression of their home living environment. It's the place you spend the most time. The greatest individual self-expression that most people have is you get to decorate your room. Mm -hmm. You get to put in plants. You get to have a dog or a cat or paint your walls a particular color or close the blinds or open the blinds. And you've picked that particular spot Mm -hmm. as a starting point for your journey. You can manipulate your physical space, but the first thing you do is you pick one that resonates with you. So how do you pick something and then shape it once you've picked it to support the highest possible quality of life for you? Are you aware that the paint that you just put into your room contains toxic off-gassing elements, VOCs? Mm. Or did you choose a really healthy paint? Same thing with your carpet. Did you use energy-efficient light bulbs? These are all micro-decisions, individual small things that collectively, once we multiply them times 300 million people here in the United States, add up to an enormous collective decision. Because every little thing that you do affects the market. Mm -hmm. When you buy something that is a healthier, greener choice, the producers of those things notice. They're like, oh, Wow, people are buying LED light bulbs, even though they're more expensive than incandescent. Why? Because people want to save money on electricity. Great. And they want to do something good for the environment. Okay. Now the market starts to respond and starts to provide the material goods that make sustainability technically possible. You, me, we don't have the ability to invent our own LED light, but we do have the ability to make decisions hundreds and hundreds of decisions in our daily life that shapes the market. And when we then talk to other people and help disseminate and advocate that information about why we chose that, 
other people, especially our friend circle, tends to get on board, and we start to create a movement collectively. Home Depot, 24 years ago, I think was the first company to have low VOC paint. And I don't think anybody would have suspected that a yeah. big international company like that would, would help to do that. And all they did was they said, ah, we're going to try it out. They put it on their shelves. Yeah. It costs three times as much as a conventional can of paint. Mm -hmm. And I'll bet they suspected this is not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Anyway, the paint flew off the shelves. They said, mm -hmm. oh, let's get some more of that. And they restocked it, and then they put it in all their stores. And when they did that, the economies of scale of production for that company that produced the low volatile organic compound, healthier indoor air quality paint suddenly became more attractive and the price of production went down. And as the price fell, yeah. the market for it became more attractive. More people bought it and like, oh, well now it's only twice as expensive. I, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to invest in that. Yeah. And then the price fell even further. Now it's the same price as conventional paint. And why on earth would you get any paint other than one that is good for your, mm -hmm. your personal health and your kid's health? Same thing has happened with solar panels and LED lights and every component of what makes green building. We look at the fundamental question at the end of the day of what creates the highest possible quality of life for you personally, for your immediate circle, your cohort, your family, your friends, and then for the larger community, whether it's your neighborhood or the city or state that you live in or the, the planet as a whole. And it all starts from that point of personal awareness and connection to the environment. Physically, how you move around the space, what a type of building does to you. Does it loom over you? Does it create an expansive, warm, supportive space? And then when you put all that together, how do you live with thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of other people collectively in a space in a way that creates a sustainable future for all of you? And sustainability in my book really comes down to the long-term quality of life. When many people hear the term quality of life, they may be thinking more about the standard of living. Do I have a car? Do I have a TV? Do I have uh, a warm house? Do I have the ability to maintain what I have, the, the comfort? For me, quality of life goes far beyond that through the lens of sustainable design. Henry David Thoreau has a wonderful quote. He says, what's the purpose of a beautiful house if you don't have a suitable planet to put it on? At the end of the day, that's what the question of sustainable design is for me. How do we create the highest possible enduring quality of life, sustainable quality of life for the most people? At the end of the day, many of us will be driven largely by how things personally impact us. And the exercises that we do, particularly at the beginning, seek to bring awareness to how sustainable design impacts you individually, and then we start expanding that circle to see how it impacts your city, your town, and the planet, so that we understand the collective impacts and the fact that there is no more away. 50 years ago, you threw things away. You send your landfill away. You yeah. got your energy from away. It's over the hill. Mm -hmm. Not anymore. Our water, our land, our air, our energy, our waste, everything. Yeah. There is no way. There's no place to send it to. There's no more frontier. And we understand that mm. everything that we do, from the products that we buy and put into our house or build our houses from, to the collective impact of the land use patterns of how we get from point A to point B and where we get all the things that sustain our lives, that this is the collective sustainability that we co-create as a culture. And it all starts from our awareness of how our individual decisions 
which are the only ones that we can make, the ones that, that you have agency over of directly and exclusively. How you get to choose what kind of paint, what kind of LED light bulbs, and where you live, where you get your energy from, and how you use it. So that's where we start the green building class, is by developing an extraordinary level of mindfulness and personal awareness about how you relate to the built environment. And I say built environment specifically because while the natural environment's always there, most of us spend most of our time in the built environment. Americans actually spend about 90% of their days indoors. Yeah. And even the additional 10% we spend outdoors, almost all of that is spent in proximity to man-made structures. Yeah. The amount of time that we spend camping in the woods Mm -hmm. is, for most people, less than 1% of our total lifespan. And yeah. even then, we're usually at a campsite or we're in a tent, mm -hmm. both of which, you know, it may be a lightweight structure, <laughs> but it is a man-made structure. Definitely. So th there's always a connection to the physical, the built environment, the yeah. world that we create. And this whole class is founded upon the idea of observing, becoming aware of, and developing an ongoing awareness mm -hmm. after the class is all done for how we relate in every step that we take in every purchase that we make that sounds like a song <laughs> uh, <laughs> of how we relate to that built environment over the rest of our lives mm -hmm. and then giving us the tools to make more conscious choices and better choices for a higher quality of life for all of us yeah wow that is so, so great. It's really interesting to hear how intentional it is, how deep it goes before it even, almost like before the planning starts. There's a plan before the plan. Yeah. You're almost making me rethink a lot of the things that I think about and how I use or spend my time in the built world, um, how much time I actually spend in the built world. It's really interesting, too, because I'm also thinking about the route I take to work. I walk to work every day. I'm very fortunate to do this, but... I take the same exact route every day. You know, I got my coffee in my backpack ready to go when <laughs> I get to work and I got my favorite song on and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna try something a little different and maybe walk to work with just a clear mind and just gazing what's around me a little bit more. So thank you for inviting me to do that and it's just really interesting to hear how you see the world and then how you're utilizing that to implement it in your company and your design and that's really cool <laughs> my pleasure yeah so i have a couple questions that i wanted to ask you sure so when i was first interested in, in green building design um sustainability and all this fun stuff a couple of years back i started looking into some things and i came across the venus project and also Earthship Designs. Mm -hmm. So Mike Reynolds and Jock Fresca. And also I, I've recently started getting into like Tesla and mm -hmm. how he's building the solar panel wall mounts for your house. Do you relate with any of those? Or? So we do talk about Earthships in the class and we talk about both high-tech and low-tech green building okay. because they're very different sides. It's almost like peanut butter and jelly of, of the sustainable design sandwich. Yeah. High-tech is where we're using our future technology, the Tesla example, to improve the situation. Tesla is coming out with uh, solar roof shingles right now. Last yeah. year they came out with solar, pan or solar batteries. And those are two of the major parts of the equation of how we become more sustainable because it's looking at where we get our energy from mm -hmm. and realizing that distributed energy, meaning in energy that doesn't come from a single power plant but is actually scattered around, 
is inherently more sustainable. One, because yeah. you don't have transmission losses through uh, power lines. Two, because when a natural disaster occurs, having distributed energy tends to make a city more resilient. When you have a hurricane, when the transmission lines from the power plant go down, everybody, a million people suddenly, and we just saw this in Florida, mm -hmm. lose power simultaneously. Yeah. It's very difficult for the power company to get everybody back online. Yeah. If we're looking 20 years into the future and everybody in Florida has solar panels on the roof now and a battery in their house, yeah, you may have lost power, but your neighbor probably didn't and you can go next mm. door. It just makes the community more resilient as a yes. whole. The second part is it gives you more direct connection to your impact on the world. When I was talking before about there is no moral way, for a long time we have thought that our power comes from over there, our waste goes over there, and once it goes over the hill and we can't see it anymore, it's not in our immediate field of awareness, our interest in doing it right diminishes. But yeah. when we have direct awareness of and agency over, meaning the power over, controlling how we produce energy, chances are, well, let me run this example. In the 1950s or so, air conditioning became common for the first time. Cities that had never been habitable before, like Phoenix, Arizona, suddenly blossomed out of the desert because now you can live there because it's 115 degrees totally. and you can run your air conditioner. Yeah. Where do you get the electricity? The single greatest use of electricity in, in a city tends to be air conditioning. So air conditioners are, even though it's a tiny little individual thing as a topic, mm. are an enormous driver of energy use. We have gotten most of our energy in the United States from coal-fired power plants, which is an enormous carbon emitter, creates visible pollution, asthma, all kinds of health impacts for the people that are there. Mm -hmm. um, there are waste, permanent hazardous waste like fly ash that, that are produced from coal-fired power plants, a whole host of problematic things. We're transitioning to natural gas, which is a lot better. We're transitioning to solar and wind, which is much better. But by and large, there's still a lot of people, millions and millions of people in the US that get most of their energy most of their electricity from coal-fired power plants. But because the coal-fired power plant tended to be over the hill, meaning away from your, my particular house, we didn't necessarily think about it. So people used energy in rather unconscious ways. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s, we built houses with minimal and sometimes no insulation. We had yeah. lights and air conditioners where the producers and manufacturers these did not think for a moment about the energy efficiency of their product. That was not one of the product features. Yeah. Starting about 20 years ago, we realized that we are, because of the rate of population growth in the world, running out of natural resources in many cases. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we started to become mindful, really for the first time in history, of our collective impact on the natural environment because we realized that, oh wow, within 20 years, 50 years, we're gonna run out of coal, oil, gas, fish, all of the places to put our waste. So we started paying careful attention to those things. And consequently, just because I think when we put our mind to it, we can get to the moon, we can create an LED light bulb in 10 years. We have the ability to advance sustainability very, very quickly once we realize the consequence of our action. So when people put the power generation in their own home, it makes 
every individual responsible for the other end of the equation, which is the power use as well, mm -hmm. because it makes them aware of, wow, my smartphone is now telling me that we collected X watts of energy today. That means that's how much energy we have to yeah. use on our refrigerator and our computers and our air conditioner. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden people will become more personally responsible for their energy use because mm -hmm. they'll also be responsible for collecting it and, and saving it, storing it. Yeah. Uh, the other question you asked was about Earthships. Uh, I'm not familiar with the Venus Project, but Earthships I, I have a lot of familiarity with. I've mm -hmm. built straw bale homes with my own hands. Yeah. I've traveled down to <laughs> uh, Michael Reynolds' uh, SOAR and REACH communities in New Mexico and taken tours and met nice. him and seen the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. One of the things to know about sustainable design is nobody's come up with the perfect solution yet. Yeah. And we are constantly evolving. Earthships were invented oh, probably almost 30 years ago, I'm guessing. They had a lot of wonderful ideas, particularly the concept of that everything is contained yeah. in this one object. And that goes back to what I was saying about Tesla, is Michael mm -hmm. Reynolds, the, the founder of Earthships, looked at that right off the bat and he said, what if you collected your own water, you digested your own waste, you generated mm -hmm. your own power and heat? And just asking that question was an incredible investigation. And he came up with a solution that's pretty good. And I say pretty good just because having been down there, I know that that Earthships have certain issues. Yeah. And that the segment of society that they appeal to is fairly narrow. Hmm. What it, We do look at that and we investigate that. And I let each student in the class pick their own areas of personal interest. So if a student is interested in Earthships, and many of my students have been, I ask them to do a report on Earthships. Hmm. But for the most part, I try to make sure that the class is aware that there are a multitude of solutions to the question of how to create the most sustainable design. It tends to be very specific to each individual site, each individual person, the region of the country that you're in, the microclimate of your particular area, and yeah. how you plan to live in this house. Mm -hmm. Some people love opening and closing windows every day. And in that particular case, a passive ventilated house might be the right solution. Mm -hmm. Other people don't want to be doing that, and they want more of a high-tech solution where it's more of a mechanically driven solution to sustainable design. Yeah. How do you create the most energy-efficient air conditioning system as opposed to opening windows? So one of the questions that we ask every student is, how do you want to live? How do you want to integrate or uh, operate your mm. particular house, school, yeah. office? And that's the, the start of each solution making process. So as we look at what would be the most appropriate sustain sustainable design, we say, how do you want to interact with your, your physical environment? Wow, so much to be said. Well, I really appreciate your passion and your knowledge and uh, you just shedding some light on the process and everything that goes into the plan. It's, it's really exciting to kind of hear it from an expert. Thank you for joining us today. So we just heard from Scott Rodwin adjunct faculty at Naropa University, and that was the talk on awareness to the built environment. Thank you. My pleasure. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.